Well, like the Zen philosopher Baksho said, he talks about change and that a fisherman is in the still part of the river and gets dragged down into the rapids, gets thrown from the boat, grabs onto this rock, holds onto this rock, even though he's being thrashed to death against this rock, he won't let go. And the river's name is Change. And it's when you think about it, you know, I think about that one a lot. He also said that a flute with no holes is not a flute, <laughs> and a donut with no holes is a Danish. <laughs> uh, I, think, I like you, man. What is up, everybody, and welcome back to the Pohada Podcast. As usual, Matt Browse of Pohada Photography. Please do check that out, by the way, at Pohada Photography on Instagram. This time around, I'm helped out once again by my buddy Chris Claviter. And we're sitting down for another Booze with a Black Belt episode, though minus the booze, as it was 10 a.m. on a Thursday, with Mike Ellefson of the Midwest Center for Movement in Hudson, Wisconsin. Ellie is the podcast's first Aikido Black Belt, which brings an interesting perspective and a new set of histories to learn to the conversations, as well as a third-degree Black Belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Before we jump in, I need to give a huge shout out once again to John Grills of Creepy Pod for his help with improving the sound of these conversations. Make sure to hit up creepypod.com and at creepypod on Instagram to check out his stuff and the 31 Days of Horror. Thanks again, Coach. Without further ado, my conversation with Mike Ellison. Mike, I want to talk to you about jujitsu and Aikido. Okay. And pretty much anything else that we stumble upon, which is the nature of this program. But first I want to ask you about your gym. Do you own a gym? Yes. <laughs> Tell me about it. I've owned MCFM in Hudson for going on 19 years. Um, we just, right before the pandemic, we moved downtown, beautiful new place, everything else. God, it was amazing traction immediately. It's like within the first six weeks, I had like 35 people sign up. And then pandemic time. So then it's just been the fight to get through that. But beautiful place right down in downtown Hudson. Um, couldn't couldn't have it any better. I finally don't have to clean bathrooms. I like that a lot. Small perks. Yeah, small perks. Have you ever... Jiu-jitsu people in bathrooms. <laughs> you. Yeah, see? I'm one of them. I know. <laughs> One of the disgusting bathroom beasts. It's, a, it's like Greg Nelson every once in a while. I love it. He'll shame some of his guys because someone will get punched in the face and they'll go like hawk a nasty, bloody goober in the bathroom and Greg takes a picture of it and just starts shaming people. I love that, it. That seems like the reasonable response. In the, mm-hmm. Clean your blood up. What would you say it was? MCFM? Yeah, Midwest Center for Movement. I started with that name um, back in the day mainly because uh, there was so much of this kill all martial arts, death destruction power martial arts, um, you know, rip people's arms off martial arts. And I was like, going, okay, I want something a little more encompassing. And it just kind of stuck. And then, of course, we went with, uh, you know, like, now it's the center BJJ, and then it's um, Aikido Buko Dojo, which means Haven of the Warrior Spirit. Dojos, quote-unquote, always have awesome names. When we try. Yeah. yeah. Say, say it again. Which one? The Haven of the Warrior Spirit. Yes. God, that's amazing. Yeah, Aikido Buko. Buko literally means haven. Versus like Hudson BJJ. Right. Let's just, I mean, it's to the point, but it's kind of bland. If you got a cool, like if your city has a cool nickname, 
then and you give it then BJJ the city name and then BJJ yeah. that's kind of like, cool. Like Robbinsdale is Birdtown, Birdtown BJJ. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's pretty slick. Yeah, I just wasn't. I'm I'm too ingrained in this area. I'm originally from Ellsworth, so there was no way I was going to name it Raider BJJ. Sorry, no, no, <laughs> not happening. <laughs> uh. You grew up in Ellsworth? So did you, yeah. grow, did you wrestle when you grew up? No, actually, uh, my dad was a football coach and a track coach and that sort of thing. And he mm-hmm. and Jack Radaba, who was the wrestling coach, hated each other. Ooh. So, you know, I never wrestled. I played <laughs> basketball. I was recruited for college basketball before I was recruited for college football. That's seems, crazy. Seems weird once you really grow up and you're like, I'm not shaped like basketball. Right? There's just a lot of... One crazy thing about Ellsworth is there's a lot of guys shaped like you that grew up wrestling their whole lives. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's kind of how everybody in Dagestan wrestles and they're all kind of like this genetically the same, but way bigger. Like the guys are like super heavyweight versions mm-hmm. everywhere. It's kind of an, intim- it's like a lot of Brock Lesnar's walking around the town. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of, a lot of farm kids. You know, we all grew up working on farms. Yeah. Whatever. I'm waiting for like fight coaches to go start recruiting young kids out of Ellsworth. Like you're going to be, you could be a heavyweight champ. Come on, kid. Probably. Yeah. There's some big boys down there now. Yeah. Especially too. they've been, so you're 230 pounds and you've been, re- and you've wide shoulders. And you've been wrestling since you're four years old. That's a lot of human to yeah. deal with. Yep. 19 years, you said? Yep. In Hudson. Two locations, or have you moved around a little bit? Uh, actually, she's back in, it would have been 2002, 2003. We started in the upstairs of the Rod and Gun Club because I, somebody, you know, I was, uh, you know, I founded the uh, Aikido program within the Warriors Cove with Dave Arnebeck, and then, you know, that kind of had a falling out a little bit. And um, so then Paul Petution and I had a place in Egan together, and then, Paul lost the lease because he didn't let me know that it was a handshake. So, Paul, if you're listening, remember that. And, um, but uh, uh, so then uh, we were we kind of moved around Burnsville. I had some students that could you know handle you know they could get me into some gyms and you know whatever else. And then one of them finally opened a school down there, and and I was like, my wife and I moved over this direction mainly just wanted to get out of the cities. And uh, my, it was funny because somebody said to me, oh, there's no way you can make a school work in Hudson. There's not enough people. I'm like, hold my beer. And <laughs> just went after it. Any any of these like satellite towns, so to speak, like Hudson is the Twin Cities in my brain. Was it 19 years ago, though? I, it wasn't. But, well, then that's kind of my point is any of like the satellite towns out on the edge is its own encapsulated community or was. And they're thirsty for something. You know, mm-hmm. like people like the neighborhood thing. So it makes sense that it would have worked to me anyway. Yeah. And I had a, you know, already had pretty good roots with the, within the community. So, you know, I'd been like North Hudson's Pepper Fest. I ran security for that for um, 11, 12 years. And so, you know, just had good roots with the people. And so when I opened, when I wanted to open a place, one of the guys that was the, I think he was the vice president of the Rod and Gun Club said to me uh he goes well, do you want to do it upstairs here and i'm like sure I go, what, what do you want from me he goes no 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 just he goes i want to see you do well and i was like oh my god i'll never forget Oli, man i owe him for everything i got mm-hmm. and you know he's retired he worked for the village in north hudson too now he's retired up north but um yeah he so i got a loan from my parents to buy zebra mats and yeah. luckily i know chuck blansky really well so he hooked me up and 
And then I did that and upstairs. So what I had to do was every day I had classes, uh, I had to put the mats down, pick them up, carry them downstairs and stack them. And I just did it. And then all of a sudden, you know, I've got 10 students and they're watching me and 15. And finally one of them clicks and they go, he shouldn't be doing this. We should be doing it. And then, so that was a shift. And then within, uh, I think it was maybe eight months of that. Then we moved into our first location, which was just south of Fleet Farm. And, you know, just kind of tucked around in a strip mall. Second location was, um, we're right next to the hockey arena. So we're in the south end. It's now owned by uh, um, the orthopedics. They, they have the whole building now, but we had the south end of that for nine years. And then they, when the um, St. St. Paul Orthopedics or Twin Cities Orthopedics bought it. Uh, they wanted the whole building. So we had to get out. And at that time, it was so hard to find a place. It was either 500 square feet or 50,000 square feet. <laughs> and so I wound up on, out on County Road A, which was kind of out in the middle of nowhere. But we survived out there for five years and then went through some personal stuff I had to handle with me, you know. And one of the things I will like to talk about is because men need to be talking about mental health and all the alpha males don't and it will F you up. Mm. And I'm a perfect example of that. So I almost torpedoed my own gym because of my mental health and I had to get that together. So then move down to where we're at now, loving it. Couldn't be happier. Where is it? Say it again. The, the the gym yeah. like 109 second street so when you get off like if you're coming from minnesota you take the first exit yeah dairy queen's gonna be on your right perfect look to your left yep. and there's and actually there's a distillery going into the end of the building too <sighs> fantastic like, and i'm right next to angel's pet world which is awesome because then i get all the kids going past mm. yeah because yeah it is a prime location and the beautiful river area yep it's jujitsu in paradise the summers in hudson are great mm-hmm. and it's just a a lot of people are going by there, and you had a great front, too, to draw the eye. Um, how long have you been doing the uh, St. Croix grappling games? Oh, my gosh. I can't even remember. When did we start that? 2000, probably 2006. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. The year net, that was the year my kid was born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The uh, first one we went to is when you had the GI BJJ shirts. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I like that um just a fun tournament if people don't know about it um a lot of people who listen to this are probably local and they've been to the tournament or whatever though it's not exactly the most stressful competition you'll ever do a lot of guys are showing up just at their own weight and you know just light going at it lightly and that's you know i i wanted it to be that because mm-hmm. i wanted it to be you know because everyone gets to the point in their competitive career where they're going to be going hardcore Mm-hmm. but it can be so daunting if that's how mm-hmm. you jump into it. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I thought it would be great to do a tournament that was kind of geared towards newer, newer people, which is mm-hmm. the way it was. Now I get black belts competing and, mm-hmm. you know, we have super fights and we do all that fun and swords. Stuff. What's that? And swords. Well, that's, that's different. We can talk about that. Later. <laughs> the, uh, oh, you mean my, like giving the, yeah, the award, okay. the award of the swords. Yeah. The awarding of swords. Um, <laughs> that sounds so ominous. I love it. We'll talk about the swords. All <laughs> right, you know. I, I just, that was a uh, first tournament we did. I think that was the first tournament my kid did. And first tournament I did first ever. Yeah, the St. Croix Grappling Games. Nice. I did it at like 205, too. I was way out of my weight class. <laughs> and then the next tournament I did at 165. 
at same one, but um, which is you do them biannually, right? Mm-hmm. So just to paint a picture of what my experience of it was, uh, I want to compete just so I have motivation when I go to train. So I know I'm pushing myself a little bit harder than I normally would, you know, and maybe it makes me go run on the treadmill, watch what I'm eating, stuff like that. Just kind of get me focused on, I don't want to embarrass myself mode. And without the stress of going, all right, I came all the way to Florida. I paid this membership. I signed up for the, this and I got a hotel and I watched all my friends party and eat all those Vegas trips for worlds, oh, yeah. you know, and you don't have all that, but you still kept yourself honest and you kind of asked a little bit more of yourself for a few weeks going up to it. Cause you don't want to waste the money and just go get smoked in your first round. Yeah. Right. And maybe some guys aren't as athletic and they can go in there and have, they're not just getting dominated because somebody's not just coming at them with everything they have. Well, you can be a person that trains two, three days a week and you still are going to get a bunch of matches, mm -hmm. you know, cause we do, we do double elimination with it mm -hmm. and you know, you can't wrestle back, you know, obviously mm -hmm. to the winner's bracket, but you know, third place comes out of the loser bracket. Yeah. And I think, you know, because most people wind up getting six, eight, 10 matches, Mm -hmm. You know, because we usually have maybe around 200 to, you know, 240 competitors. Yeah. And sometimes a little higher than that, but. And I've always seen you guys let them, people weigh in the night before. Yep. Which is nice. Um, yeah. So it's just, uh, the only thing I've been wanting to ask is what are the chances of getting food and beer trucks out there for one of these tournaments? <laughs> the issue is. That just seems no, like we've, just we've done it all food, together. We've done food trucks before okay. and that's been done pretty well. Um, and I probably will have a food truck, but the problem with the beer truck is we are on the school property. I know. We got to get you another location. <laughs> I just, well, you know, Chris Hansen, the wrestling coach is a good friend of mine. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's a neighbor of mine in North Hudson, Hudson. high school wrestling yeah. coach. Yep. Yep. And so he lets me, you know, I make a donation to the wrestling mm -hmm. club, but other than that, he lets me have carte blanche with all the stuff. He gets me timers, scales, the mats, yeah. everything right there. And yeah. so. That's too sweet a deal. Yeah. Fig figure out your Budweiser mm -hmm. on your own. Well, if it's BYOB, that's good. Just, that's a pretty good deal, too. So, so <laughs> also illegal. Yeah. It's Wisconsin. That's I think a you fair could... point. So we, have, we did have <laughs> one year. Point. We did have one year where uh, um, we were at the hockey arena right next. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because we just hauled our mats over, and then there was a couple um, – federal agencies in the cities that I train do defensive tactics and officer survival for, and I got them hooked up with mats. So we stole their mats too for yeah. the day. And we, so we had this huge mat area in there and Spencer, when he was working, what's his last name? Um, uh, trains at Alliance the, the now. Fulton guy. Yeah. He, yeah. He mm -hmm. used at that time he was working for, uh, um, uh, Surly. Mm. So when he, so he brought us like, like flats of like yes. pounders. So wow. yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty good by the, by the end of the problem is by the end of the tournament, nobody <laughs> wanted to do anything like put mats away <laughs> yeah. or do that. No, just, I mean, and like a gym, a fun tournament is a lot on who put it together and the people who they have working for them. So you obviously have a good crew Oh yeah, and they bring the fun to the tournament. So with all these distilleries and uh, opening up around here and there's a brewery, Open it up around here, I think. Well, there's oh. there's one already. Yeah. We've got two in town. Have you thought about doing something like brujitsu out here? Yeah, we actually I actually talked to Brian Prefer, who's one of the owners of um, Hop and Barrel, mm -hmm. and he's he's on board with doing something like that. So super fights at a, at Hop and Barrel. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So he, and Brian's a great friend of mine. So that would be so it'll be something we'll be looking at. It's just you know once again now that we're finally coming out of this pandemic. It's the only reason I I didn't do a fall grappling games is because. 
with the school district the way it was, I and what with the renovations they did and everything, mm-hmm. when I reserve and pay for the gym, it's non-refundable. So if something went south and there was an outbreak, and then you know I'd be out ton of money for a charity tournament that yeah. you know, I donate we donate the majority of the profits to different local charities and we defy foundation of course which mm-hmm. you know I'm a we defy academy and oh you are yeah I've, I was one of the first ones awesome so I've known am I wearing a we defy shirt you are, you are That's a pretty standard we thing for me when mm-hmm. we record for some reason I like that I like that when did you start doing aikido Started doing Aikido. Well, I'll give you my the synopsis of my martial arts career. Yeah. I'm take it easy. Love it. Um, so my, my dad being a teacher, FIAD coach, or FIAD teacher, coach, everything else, and he was military, very military. And so, you know, he would grab these kids and smash them into walls if they needed to be, you know, back when teachers could do that sort of thing. And uh, so... They still need it. Oh, yeah. You just can't uh, yeah. do it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's that's why I teach where I teach. <laughs> Parents pay me to do it. Um, <laughs> Wrist locks for the youth division. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm all about that. He knows. <laughs> yeah. um, but so I started when I uh, my dad put me into martial arts when I was 11, mainly because number one I was getting to be a bit of a bully because I was being bullied all the time, and so you know kind of runs downstream. Mm-hmm. And so I stuck with that. When I was 17, I was in uh, Milwaukee. And I'd been studying, uh, I started with Shotokan Karate, which everyone's, you know, because it was the only thing that was around. And then I went to Okinawan Kempo, which, you know, I still use uh, a lot of the striking aspect of that within my Aikido. And uh, I met this, I went to the Milwaukee Aikikai, and there was this guy named Norio Mike Mamora, who couldn't have been 5'5". Little old dude, six degree black belt from Japan, obviously. Um, And I went in there. And, you know, I'm wearing a black gi, but I put on a white belt, you know, and they welcomed me, but they're, you know, they're kind of like, who's this big dude with the black gi? And so I came in and, you know, after I trained a couple of times, they realized, no, I, he's just here to train. And so I went up and I, uh, Mamora Sensei said to me, he goes, punch me, and punch me in the face. I'm like, okay. And I kind of, kind of throw this little half-ass punch at his melon. And he goes, no, 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 no. Don't make a liar out of me. He goes, punch me. Kind of, once again, a little half-assed. And then he goes, he goes, is that how they teach you to punch in your heart? I'm like, all right, here it comes, old man. <laughs> I threw a punch at him, and I wound up skidding across the dojo on my shoulder blades about 15 feet. I had Jeez. no idea how it happened. In fact, I was wearing, you know, a canvas gi, mm-hmm. and they're on a canvas tatami. So when I was, I can still remember the feeling of skidding on my shoulder blades in the heat of the friction between my right. knee and the floor. It was like right. almost like my back was burning. So I was like, going, oh, wow, I want this. No shit. Yeah. Yeah, Explain so. the black gi thing for people that don't know. Oh, it was just um, in Aikido, traditionally, you mm-hmm. wear a, a white dogi. And uh, in my style of Kempo, you wore a black. So, yeah. so you're an odd man out. I was the odd second. man out. Isn't there something when you get to a certain rank, you get the big flowy pants <laughs> right, that I can't remember what they're called, but can, isn't isn't a black gi kind of like a black belt thing in Aikido? Uh, no, you know, you'll see some people that are real high ranking will wear like navy blue gis, and sure. usually those are people that, like I do, that have uh, do sword training also. Okay. okay. Uh, but the hakama is what you're talking about. Yeah, the, we go. The, the, 
and um, even if I could remember the name, I still would have said the big flowy pants. Yeah, yeah, and and the the history on the Hakama is that originally it was shaps for the mounted uh, uh, samurai who were higher ranking than the Ashigaru or foot soldiers, and um, you know with some of the diseases that came through with the Portuguese they in Japan during the feudal times, they wound up a. Uh, uh, a lot of the horses died, but so the samurai that were on horseback went to the ground. But how do they still show that they're higher ranking? So they kept the the hakama, and there's this entire thing where it hides the footwork of your sword and blah blah blah. And that's, sure, that's sure. BS. It doesn't. Sure. But that's the romance. Uh, so you got to yes. like that story. Right? Yeah. Well, it's, it's like it's like glorifying, you know. And I, I'm all about Japanese culture and everything mm-hmm. else. And you, you, you can even say I've appropriated it. Um, I've got a I've got a couple Japanese friends that speak no Japanese, and uh, they call themselves eggs, and they call me a Twinkie. Yeah. Common <laughs> phrases. Yeah. Common phrases. Couple eggs and Twinkies in the room as well. <laughs> so yeah, then with a. I just kept with the Aikido and, um, uh, yeah, it's how long you've been doing Aikido well, since 1989. So whatever the math is on that, that like 43 years. <laughs> I don't there. think it's that long. <laughs> it's over 30. I know that. Um, when did you start jujitsu? Uh, the end of 97, beginning of 98. So, and when I started back then, uh, literally, the only people with rank in the region, and this was even before Mario Roberto came up, mm-hmm. um, but the only people who had rank were Greg Nelson and Dave Arnbeck, and they were both blue belts. So, you know, seeing a, back then, a black belt was like a unicorn. You know, the first black belt I ever trained with was Hicks and Gracie. And you want to talk about what scared the hell out of me, man. Mm-hmm. He's an intense dude. Now I see him and it's like, okay, I like you. We're fun. Okay. <laughs> he remembers me and we get along just great. What did it feel like rolling with him back when nobody knew nothing? Well, here's the thing is I knew so little at that point. I actually did a private in his garage with him and uh, Luis Heredia. Sweet. Luis Heredia, um, Lamau, um, who owns like the, uh, what is it, Oahu or um, uh, Jiu-Jitsu. He's one of uh, Hickson's long-term guys, and uh, he kind of helped me through it because Hickson's like, ah, ah, it's just, because Hickson is not the most patient teacher, at least he wasn't back then. Mm-hmm. Now you go to his seminars, and he's super happy, and he's older. doing some, what's that? He's older, too. Well, he's older. And, People get slower when they get older. They calm down. You also got to learn to sell yourself if you want to continue That's to make true, money too. off yeah, of stuff. Yeah, so and he's, you got to calm it down a bit. But, you know, he's amazing. I've been lucky to train with the people I've trained with, you know, having, you know, trained with Hickson and get my blue belt through Hickson and then, you know, training with Higa Machado, of course, got my black belt through him. And like I've trained with Sergio Pena down in mm-hmm. Las Vegas. You know, those <clears throat> the old school guys, those are the, your three best right there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every one of them just, de- you know, rolling with Hickson is... You, you just can't find an opening mm-hmm. rolling with Hegan. It's, it's like a, an enormous bear cat. He's, <laughs> you know, he's, he's massive and he just floats around you. And like, if you, if you really try, you can, any one of those guys, if you really try, it's weird because you don't even see it, but you just feel the switch and then, then you're dead. <sighs> but they're just waiting for you to put the juice on and then they just clamp it. Well, down. no, it's like if you're playing and then all of a sudden you think, Ah, oh, maybe I can get, I'm going to get this guy. No. 
Mm-mm. You're just recognizing invitations they're giving you. Yeah, yeah. That's the end. Okay. Yeah, and Sergio Pena is uh, fantastic. Um, he's he he he's got a bunch of killers down at his place. Um, you guys know Ryan Wells, of course. Mm-hmm. You know I did Ryan's podcast, but Ryan trained down there quite a bit when he was traveling back and forth. And he, Ryan said to me, "Goes yeah, they're killers." I go, "Yeah, they are." So where have you trained mostly? Like ninety seven, ninety eight. So ninety seven, ninety eight, I was with the Warriors Cove. Okay. So because I started the Aikido program, you know, within the Cove, and then, um, and you know, I didn't really do the jujitsu probably for until, you know, like that end of ninety seven, nine beginning of ninety eight, and I said, well, I'm going to take a class. I want to try it, you know, and so I'm rolling with Dave Arnabeck, who's all of a hundred and fifty, hundred and sixty pounds maybe, and tap, snap, tap, tap, tap. I'm like, when I can't do anything, I'm like. I need this. There's a hole in my game. I need it. So, is that where you did most of your training? Oh no! no. Then I yeah. moved give, on. Once I got, uh, give me the line. Give me the whole, the whole. Okay. Lineage. So once we kind of left, uh, well, we wound up separating from the Warriors Cove. Paul Petuchin and I uh, kept training. Paul was under Mario Roberto, and I was, you know, I had the Aikido program, and then Paul and I had kept training, obviously. And then uh, when I moved to Hudson, and at that point I was still, because I got my blue belt in uh, 2000, end of 2000, beginning of 2001. And then, you know, because there's nobody around and we weren't affiliated with anyone, you just sat there. But um, then Tim Mahidi and I were both blue belts and he came in, we met and he came into my school. And so we started a jujitsu program and we affiliated under Pedro Sauer with Greg Nelson. So I'd travel, you know, couple times a week every week go up to the academy and you know back when it was minnesota martial arts academy and then we'd um go up there and do privates with greg and you know just roll with you know all the all the old school guys you know remember you know i I remember a lot of times wednesday mornings i'd be like the ranking dude as like a two or three stripe blue belt (laughs) and greg would be like had something going on he would go can you teach class i'm like Okay, all this way to teach class. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be a regular feature in a lot of people's stories. As I do these episodes, is traveling forty-five minutes plus on a regular basis to train oh, yeah. with Greg because for the OG crowd, like that's all. That's we where had. you went. You know, well, that's all you had. You know, it was uh, yeah. Because then um, I was at a seminar at McCune's place, and I hadn't really even met Chris McCune yet. Now, now he's like my brother. You know, I love him. Like, actually, he, he looks like your brother. I know. People, there's a little bit. My, my shorter, uglier brother. You seen, that meme, you seen the meme with the Joker and then there's a little Joker and then yeah. there steps together? That's you guys. <laughs> but, you know, he and I hit it off so well. But he had a, so he had a seminar with Luis Pajaras. And, you know, Luis is now a seventh degree black belt under Hickson down in Florida. And Luis is, Luis is really cool. He's just got a, his style is really cool because he's kind of, you know, stout little round dude, and he just makes it all work. So he's like, you know, short legs, teaching people with short legs how to triangle mm-hmm. because you can do it. Mm-hmm. You just got to, you know, figure it out. <laughs> and thumbs so, up. Huh? <laughs> so, anyways, I was there, and Louise remembered me from California, and he goes, How long have you been a, and this is in like 2007 to 2008. He goes, How long have you been a blue belt? And I'm like, Six years? No. No, because I he was testing some people, yeah, and I was being okay for him, and I'm playing nice because you know these guys are testing purple and one brown, and I I'm just 
playing with them because he'd been doing it so much longer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Luis, next day he goes, you're testing. So he tested me, and I had a broken toe and a pulled hamstring. And he put me through Hickson's purple belt test because that's what he, his curriculum. And he's like, can you uh, can you do the other side? I'm like, no, I can't. You know, he's like, can you do triangle the other side? I can't. And, like, yeah. and then at the end, he's going to throw me, and I'm hugging him super tight because <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is going to hurt. But, yeah, so I got my purple belt from him. And I had no idea because, you know, he's a Hickson guy. So I'm sitting there going, Hickson, Hickson, you know, whatever. And uh, I told Greg Nelson that. And this was the only time Greg and I ever had any any friction between us. Um, Because Greg, you know, goes, you know what? I've been offered belts from other people. I got every stripe, every belt from Pedro Sada, like this. And I'm like going, and? I go, this doesn't negate the fact that a dude that's, you know, six at the time, six degree black belt just said I'm a purple belt. Yeah. And so then kind of had our falling out. Now Greg and I get along great. You know, mm-hmm. I love Greg dearly. And he's, Greg is, like you said, he, he's uh, jujitsu wise, you know, very much, you know, I consider him the, the, the godfather in this area. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, uh, but so after well, to, that. Well, to the point of the friction, like jujitsu is jujitsu. Well, but it was so much more, but you got to remember back then it was so much more political. It was Mm -hmm. this camp versus this camp. I remember competing when I was, you know, a blue belt, a new blue belt. And, you know, it was, you know, we're fighting all the same guys and it was, you know, Cove versus the Academy. That was Mm -hmm. it. You know, so I remember, you know, like, you know, you know, Tao and some of those guys, um, Kevin, big Kevin. I can't remember what his name is. I got pancaked by him. But he, he used to be a just massive, and he got his blue belt. I remember they, them telling me after the uh, match that they had to, like, uh, sew two blue belts together for him. That's how big it was. So weight classes were kind of, <laughs> he didn't know what you were going to get into. It was early UFC weight classes. Yeah, so You're much. here, and you're here. All right. Yep. And so, and then, you know, the only tournament run was a sub hunt. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you go to that, and that was all you had. Otherwise... You know, there wasn't even much going on in Chicago. You know, Naga hadn't even really started anything yet at that point, and especially in the Midwest. You know, everything was still so secularized to the coast. I feel like Chicago really caught on late. As big as it's for being the third largest city in America, they didn't have, I mean, even in the early 2000s, they didn't really have much going on. Brazilians don't like cold. But we we had a lot going on here. I mean, and that's largely because of your original guys who, who got into it. Mario moving up here, mm-hmm. you know, and then, so yeah, with Greg and Mario here, we got a good fast track going, yep. but for some reason they just didn't get those kind of guys in Chicago. Yeah, like, I don't know why. That's a good point. There's not a massive, there was never a massive MMA presence. Oh, that's because, but that was because the, the stranglehold of the boxing commission down there. That's true too. There, we could do a whole podcast on that, on that. But. And it's still a stranglehold there. That's why it's you know, problematic. So anyways, got my purple belt from Luis Paul Harris. Wound up connecting with McCune. Um, he and I just hit it off so well. Uh, I meet Hegan. Hegan and I hit it off. And I've already, you know, I already trained with Jean Jacques, and so I, you know, I knew the knew the drill. But Hegan was so chill, so nice, and you know, a lot of his game really suited me. So uh, he welcomed me with open arms. Uh, then, uh, and that was about the time when I was a purple belt, and I made the connection that. Jiu-jitsu, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Aikido are the same thing. Mm. Exactly the same thing. Once I made that connection, I got my purple belt and then I got my brown. And when I got my brown, it was a year and a half to my black. But wow. it was still but it was still 13 years I was yeah. I did it before I got my black belt. 
that seems to be another regular thing that pops up as I ask people to tell these stories. Like like grills got to purple in like two years mm-hmm. or something silly. But purple lasted a long time. You, you know, know and it, it almost seems to average out to that 10 to 13, 10 to 15 years, no matter yeah, what. You're starting to see it because we are the older guys. I, you know, I guess I'm an older guy. When you guys referred yep. to me as an OG, I was like, oh my God. I told my wife, I go, what the hell? She goes, you're going to be 50. Deal <laughs> with it. I'm like, thanks, hon. Um, but uh, yeah, and within the Machado, the way they kind of run it, um, Purple Belt is the longest belt in the Machado system. It just is. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, historically within the brothers, how they handled things, That's that was it. And so that's why John was sat that long. Why do you think? What What is it about Purple? Um, in their mindset, Purple Belt is, because in the Machado mindset, you don't separate um, instructor from competitor to practitioner. So all things are weighted equally. So at Purple Belt, that's when you should start mentoring people, and that's what they want to see. At that point, the art can't just be about you. It has to be about your community. And I love that part of it, too. Yeah, I like that, too. You you kind of know enough that you should start playing a different role. Yeah, and well, because your job, you know, my job is to have my students beat me. My job is to get my students to black belt faster than I ever got. Right? And it's, you know, you got to, so at that point, you got to check your own ego. And if you start doing it at Purple Belt, it makes it a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let the ego get as big. Nip it in the bud no. earlier. So tell me how or why um, jiu-jitsu and Aikido are the same thing. Fundamentally. Yeah, um, at, the, at, at the core. For right? me, fundamentally, because what you're doing movement-wise with your body, and it goes back, and it's, I, love, I love where Hickson's at with his stuff because he talks connection. And like when, you know, four or five years ago, you know, I did seminars with Hickson and down at uh, Luis Claudio's place and... Uh, Illinois, and um, he started talking about the connection aspect of things. And I'm like, well, he's doing Aikido. It makes all the sense in the world to me. I get this. And but it is. It's it's because it it's not. If you try to impose your will at all times on another person in jujitsu, you're gonna fail. At some, you, there's gonna be points where you are just going to fail. And whether or not you can see it or not, it's because. All you're doing is thinking about what you want. If you can take into account what the other person wants while you're doing things, you're going to be much more efficient. You're going to be able to dissect your opponents easier, and you're going to be able to apply your game versus impose a will. And you're going to be able to neutralize their game. You know, it's, you know, take people, you know, I roll with a lot, a lot of different people. Perfect example are the Blummers. You know, Mel and Marv, love those guys. And, they're like little Tasmanian devils. They, you know, you, you got to, so what do I do? Okay. I'm bigger. I'm older. What do I do? I slow them way down and you can ask Mel. He hates it. And he just sits there and kind of vibrates. Um, but it's, it's, so that kind of connection. And that's, that's what it is with Aikido because with Aikido, you are not looking to impose your will. You respect the other person's energy and what they're trying to do. And you utilize that to your advantage and try to be as, you know, gentle about it as possible. Now, my style of Aikido is not your fluffy bunny 
Aikido and we're not hopping around mm-hmm, and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, my instructor was huge on, yes, be soft, be relaxed, be benevolent. But at the end of the day, you get yourself and your family home safe. So he had zero compunction with cracking a motherfucker in the head. So. <laughs> Fuck yeah, man. Wait, say, say his name. Who is your instructor? It is Bill Sosa. Um, really, he was a Golden Gloves boxer, studied a lot of judo, a lot of Aikido. Obviously, he was, uh, when he passed away in 2002, he was a sixth degree black belt and he was underranked. And he absolutely, because I didn't train with him, I trained in more of the traditional Aikikai style. Um, up till the time I met him and he completely paradigm shift for me because it was like, Oh, I like this. Oh, we, we do get to hit people hard. Okay. I'm in, <laughs> man. When you talk about a combat athlete coming up in the eighties and nineties, eighties, not so much. It feels like the eighties were at least by this point, a decent amount of time away. But when you talk about a combat, like a complete combat athlete in the nineties, it was a guy who was a golden gloves boxer, knew a keto, studied Aikido obsessively, right? And, and knew some judo. Yeah, or that, just one of the Japanese arts for sure. Well, somebody who has more than one art. Yeah. For some reason, it feels like that we've come, it just kind of paints how far we've come since the mid 90s to now. I mean, now you can have just random kids everywhere walking around who know three different deadly martial arts and train them obsessively. But it's, once again, it's still so rare. You know, our community, we we see everything from the bubble of our community. Mm-hmm. Ninety, You got to remember 99% of those people out there couldn't fight with their way out of a wet paper bag. But back in the mid-90s, you'd have to go to Milwaukee to meet a guy who did, you know, you'd have to drive a few hours oh, yeah. to meet one person who did many, s- several martial arts. You know, you had, they were spread out by a few hours. Now they're... There's exponential growth, but it was from an absolute infinitesimal population yeah. to a slightly larger infinitesimal population Just yeah the amount of growth in the sport and the amount of knowledge across the board you know and the access yeah you know as, as a trajectory into the future it feels it's like much easier to go and learn anything mm-hmm. we've mentioned in terms of having access to it yeah it feels like i mean just tenfold over the course of just a few years it's amazing hearing these stories it feels like you're telling a story from way back in the day way back in the day you're like oh wait 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 hold on i was an adult when this story was going on this this story's in black and white (laughs) exactly yeah my impression of aikido and i think i mentioned that i did a little bit very very little bit many many years ago is matches perfectly with what you were describing no shit, you're a black belt in Aikido, so you would understand it, right? But like, the impression I walked away from the little practice I had was effectively using the other person's energy against them. Mm-hmm. You want, I want you to try to impose your will because I'm going to respond to that and use it and then walk away. Well, and there's another aspect to it too that a lot of people, you know, because I always tell my students, just because of its defensive art doesn't mean you're a victim. So um, if someone's like getting up in your face or something. I have zero compunction with being the one that takes the first shot because I'm still going to get that required response that I want from the person. So, But I have to take into account their energy. I have to take into account what they want because if I can give in a little bit to get what I want, it's well worth it. And that's uh, I talk to my jiu-jitsu students about that because that's my jiu-jitsu in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. I'll give a little bit so that I can take what I want. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the... Any, if any, what differences do you see between hop keto and aikido? Um, well, hop keto, and trust me, uh, there are practitioners in hop keto that are far stronger than I. Um, the the uh, Choyon Sul was a 
personal attendant to Sokako Takeda, who was the uh, uh, disseminator of Daito Ru Aiki Jiu Jitsu, which was the the precursor art to Aikido. Um, it's what the founder of Aikido studied prior to um, um, developing Aikido. Morihei Ueshiba. Very good. Did I get it? Yeah. Right. Dead wow. on. It's O-Sensei. Oh, Boom. <laughs> Boom. Sorry, go ahead. So, anyway, so Choi actually, because he was Korean, was never actually allowed to train. He just watched because he was the personal attendant to uh, Takeda. But he obviously was a good watcher because he took what he saw back to Korea, mixed it with the indigenous art, which was pre-Taekwondo, obviously. But it you know, obviously came from Japanese karate and um, created Hapkido. So there's... the. There's similarities physically, but it's like the the difference between um, someone performing a jujitsu wrist lock and me performing an aikido wrist lock on the ground is mm-hmm. com- a completely different animal. Because when people do jujitsu wrist lock, superficially they are locking the wrist, right? Mm-hmm. Right, looking for the tap. I'm cumulatively joint locking their skeleton. I want not just the wrist. I want it to get into the elbow, shoulder, neck, or to the hips. So it's a different mindset. And so Hapkido tends to be more of that first where we're just going to break the wrist or we're just going to do this versus that cumulative mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, I, I know people that are very, very good at it. Mm-hmm. I grew up in, in a Hapkido home, uh, not studying a lot, but my dad would, when you were talking about the Aikido flow with you, he'd do the whole thing when I was mid-teenager. He was a black belt in Hapkido and he'd take. All right, just give me everything you got. Give me how are you gonna fight somebody? You just gotta go at him, go at him, and he just steps aside. I'd be on my face, type of deal. And it was always the transfer of energy type of thing mm-hmm. that be like water type oh, of situation. Yeah. So when you're describing yeah. Aikido, it sounds a lot like what I'm familiar with Hapkido. And it, I'm sure that there's got to be similar similarities within mm-hmm. it. And you know, there's only so many ways you can punch, twist, throw, yeah, pin yeah. a human being. It's but just, it's got also. A, few decades behind i mean not just behind aikido but even when you're, you're talking about uh taking it from it's watching aikido right so you already get a, a little bit of a carbon copy going on because it's a guy watching not practicing and now he's trying to take it home to his the people he's training with and trying to train them and saying all right i think this is how it works it'd be like watching jujitsu on youtube and then trying to show your friends how to do jujitsu right so you already have you're starting way behind and then there's the whole occupation of korea where they wouldn't let them practice martial mm-hmm. arts while Japan was enslaving Korea. And that's when you get Taekwondo, why Taekwondo looks like a dance form, because they had to hide it, that they're doing martial arts. So, so now you have another leg in history so they can't where they can't grow. And really, Hapkido only was allowed to grow post-Korean War, which there's no money. Everybody's trying to eat. There's not a lot of time to practice martial mm-hmm. arts. So really, Hapkido... Hapkido could really only kick off around the 60s, 70s. Yeah, it's. I know the kind of the inception side of it. I, yeah. You know, once it starts evolving into what it is today, yeah. I, I'm I'm not an expert. I on went that. to Korea. That must be where the phrase, do you want to dance, comes from. You want to dance? <laughs> it is a Korean phrase. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that the Hapkido culture that I saw when I was in, I went to Korea as a kid. I mean, I was third, fourth grade. During the Korean Olympics, we went back to see my mom's family, and tra- my dad brought me to train at his old dojo. That's cool. It was cool. It was December. There was holes in the door, and if you got cold, if you complained about being cold, they would just smoke you. I mean, you would just—I remember just them just wrecking me as a little kid. Sounds about right. 
the there's a little black belt kid who was like 12 or whatever and he just come in and just throttle anybody being lazy and he was totally the instructor and then they made you had you take ice baths at the end i was like this is <laughs> bananas you know and if that's the way they st- stuck to their training i imagine over the, since the 80s they've gotten pretty efficient you know if they're challenging themselves that mm-hmm. much playing king of the mountain every day in the gym like that. everything evolves so you're gonna yeah. have you're gonna have like there's styles of aikido like one of my uh, biggest pet peeves was that uh a podcast with the Roganator um, when he had the Aikido guy on there. And I'm like going, way to pick the most wimpy, fluffy, like, just, I'm just like, I'm like, no, this is, and and then, you know, tear him apart. And I'm just like going, and then, you know, Rogan makes the, uh, well, you know, no, no law enforcement, no military. I'm like, bullshit. I go. I train law enforcement and military, and I use an Aikido based system. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, it's, it's all who's it's. It comes down to the practitioner, really. Yeah. Do you feel that uh, a lot of people in the McDojo world seem to be trying to do fake Aikido, and you know they're using that supposed transfer of energy to throw a guy, and they barely touch fifteen feet or whatever. Yeah. Why do you think that's so attached to Aikido movements? Um. Mainly because you can see, okay, the traditional Aikido garb, the white gi with the black hakama. Yeah. Now, the problem is, is that that is really common through tons and tons of Japanese styles of jujitsu. And even some of the more esoteric styles that are, you know, more we're going to, we're going to, you know, do this and you know, I'm going to wave at you and you fall down. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where it comes in. It's like, you know, even like last week, McCune put on my, my page, it was like some dude laying on his back wearing a hakama and the guy grabs his leg and, you know, he goes like this and throws the dude and Chris goes, I think Ellie can do this. And I go, no, I'm sorry. That's way beyond my purview. Uh-huh. Mike, Mike, if you waved your hand at me, I think I would actually probably fall over. I don't want to mess with that nice. at all. And part of that, don't you think it would, wouldn't just be like a low-level association that like most people would see those pants, that outfit, and assume like, whoa, this is like some kind of kung fu samurai jutsu kind of thing. And they look that way, and it looks cool. So if I'm a fraud and some kind of a goofball, a McDojo kind of thing, all the way up the line to you know the most legitimate practitioner, like I want to sell my brand on Instagram, this is what I'm going to rock. So then it brings the negative association back around. Absolutely. You know? Well, you think about it with Aikido. Um, Aikido kind of was the precursor to what jiu-jitsu had to go through. Um, you know, you know why, why did I start Aikido? What movie did I see? Above uh, the, the law. law. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So above the law. <laughs> we all I knew went, the answer. <laughs> I went, what is this? I've never seen anything like this. So that's why I sought out Aikido because I wanted to see it for myself. You know, being, you know, you know, having 10 year, whatever, six mm-hmm. years of martial arts training in at that time. And so once that hit and it became so popular, every little McDojo, karate, mm-hmm. taekwondo place, all of a sudden was teaching Aikido. So now think about, go fast forward to the early 90s with uh, um, the UFC coming out and everything else. Amazing how many people you saw in the middle of nowhere, backwoods, that were black belts in jujitsu or you know, Te- teaching it teaching at all jujitsu. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, even to this day, you know, people are outing frauds all the time. 
you know i like one of my things i really like was beltchecker.com when they came out mm. and uh you know i was like going um actually uh one of the guys from jiu-jitsu globe trotters got hold of me and said you should get your get get on this and get some people who are trying to gain steam with this yeah and so i did and i'm like well this is kind of nice because it vets people and you know it's like i i've got a certificate from them you know with my third degree black belt certificate and it's got a, a qr code on it so someone can literally come up shoot the qr code and get my profile and my background and everything else yeah, that's a that's a mini youtube rabbit hole to go down is guys going into gyms and exposing fraudulent <laughs> oh, yeah. jiu-jitsu teachers um steven seagal yeah opinions uh okay i've trained with him two times been on the map with two times i've taken ukemi from him taken technique from him really big man now this is obviously we're talking 15 you know 15 maybe 20 years ago but really big man fast hands great technique on the mat very impressive off the mat asshole <laughs> minute he steps off the mat you just want you don't want anything to do with him so his aikido is legit yeah okay. um because well, he, he goes way back into like japan he was a teacher yeah, he, in was, japan he was the first that. american to yes. be teaching in a uh in a dojo in osaka because his first wife Miyaki, uh, Miyaki fujitani who is a hell of an aikidoist in herself her dad owned the dojo dad was sick he um uh, seagal married uh, fujitani and uh they had because the dad was sick and a female couldn't be the head of the dojo then mm. so seagal was pretty rapidly promoted to fifth degree black belt at the time and he stood there for a long time but you know he he was trial by fire because people were going after him in osaka that'd be a really tough time for him because not that there's oh, there racism still anti-american sentiment he, and also like to this day you don't see american names at the top of honda or Yamaha mm -hmm. or anything. There's there's still that uh, samurai culture in there where Absolutely. we'll let you get close, but you're never going to be the kings unless you're purely Japanese. Um, so to pick, like, I can't let my daughter run it, and I got a white son-in-law. Crap. Yeah, so you're <laughs> rocking a hard place. but Yeah. So, you the know, way he saw it, yeah. You know, you, you think of that sentiment. Uh, one of my great, great friends is uh, uh, the first American to ever get a black belt in Aikido. His name's Ken Purdy, and he's he's a living treasure. He lives north of Wausau, and so you know, I've known him now for a long time. I've had him for seminars, and he is just absolutely one of the finest people you'll ever meet. He stands about this tall, and you know he's slowing down. He's in his mid eighties now. Um, <laughs> mid eighties, but you, down. seriously, you grab him, it's still like it's like grabbing a piece of iron. And it's just amazing. But, you know, he's been doing it so long, the physicality isn't even his connection. His, I, can, I call it kinetic linking because how you connect to the ground determines everything. And his kinetic linking is so efficient that you can't unbalance him. Just, it's like grabbing a piece of iron that throws you. But just like, he is absolutely a living treasure. That piece seems to be one of the more important pieces of any martial arts training is the base we'd call it modern times mm -hmm. or like a, how, how sturdy is somebody on their feet in any given position you know when you start thinking about falls in your 60s 70s and 80s and how that's generally the start of the decline of your life right you know in the, in like the most basic day-to-day -day living sense so yeah if you've trained for years and years and somebody bumping into you in a supermarket when you're 77 years old doesn't mean hospitalization it's, and pneumonia yeah. and death i've like, got a i've got a good friend who's the only 
um, Westerner that's a legitimate soke or inheritor of a Japanese art. It's Takamura Ha Shindo Yoshinru. His name is uh, Toby Threadgill. And he's an amazing swordsman, amazing martial artist. He actually started his training with my teacher in Texas. And uh, Toby always says, you have a finite number of breakfalls in your body, so conserve them. <laughs> Crap! <laughs> Build better base. Fall better. That's good. When'd you get your black belt? And Aikido? Either. Um, We're doing both. <laughs> making me think now. So let's see. 92 is when I got my black belt in Aikido, and it was... Okay, so it's been how many years now? It's been ten years since I got my black belt in jujitsu. So that would have been two thousand one then, right? Yeah. So black belt in Aikido, five or six years later start jujitsu. Mm-hmm. Um actually I was promoted um I was just a new Sandan when I started jujitsu, third degree black belt in Aikido. Okay. Because I started like I said, at the end of ninety seven, beginning of ninety eight. Advantageous to come in with that background into jujitsu? Um, I don't think it helped nor hindered me. I think probably the thing that helped me the most was I didn't have a wrestling background. You know, I didn't. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've gotten to be a decent wrestler by proxy because of my students that are good wrestlers. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, coming in with just, you know, because, you know, in Aikido, your groundwork is suwariwaza. It's from the knees. And, you know, it's more or less... It, it's how the, the movement is called shiko, and it's how the samurai would move around their houses with the lower um, ceilings. Mm. And the other thing is, too, is you always wanted to make sure if you had a higher-ranking person, your head was never above theirs. So the suwariwaza is great for your hips, just being able to use your center and move correctly. Um, but that was groundwork in Aikido. You know, there wasn't any ground grappling as such. And so for me, it was so it was new. It was just it was new. It was exciting. It was the first thing in a long time that made me go, "Wow, I want this." Well, like you said earlier, it was sort of finding a uh, filling a hole in your game or finding a gap in your game. Exactly. What happens when I do hit the ground? Well, it's it's the reason I did boxing when I was in college. You know, I liked my tempo striking, but I loved the footwork of boxing. And the the cool thing is the footwork of boxing is the exact same as the footwork of Aikido and Japanese sword, which I've been studying for 25 years. So I love, I love my three foot razor blades. The, uh, <laughs> that's a scary story. yeah that's just a weird way of phrasing it i'm sweating now uh <laughs> the uh shit what years uh were you in college um 1994 for my undergrad and then okay. 97 for my when i met chris hansen he said that you completely changed in college like you were always a, a scrappy guy into martial arts stuff and stuff like that but he said college you found a whole network of people who and you were just on your path at that point. Yeah, yeah. And so I was kind of wondering, and now you're telling, now that I hear your story, I'm like, that must've been all been around 89, 90. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you think of the footwork, like we talked about, yeah. I'm talking boxing, Aikido and, mm-hmm. um, Mike Tyson visited, uh, uh, Yoshinkan Aikido Hambu Dojo, the headquarters dojo in Japan. And he was watched, he watched it and he said, he goes, yeah, this footwork is exactly like boxing. And it is because, you're finding the angle for the weakness, mm-hmm. you know, and then the sword work is the same thing. You're, you know, if you're dealing with, a, let's say an armored opponent, you have to find the right angle to shiv them where they don't got armor. If you, 
if we go into a Walking Dead scenario, where do you put your net worth? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just say Walking Dead scenario, everyone meet up at Fleet Farm. Yeah, well, we'll we're, take it over. I'm meeting up wherever you and your swords are at. That's where I'm going. <laughs> Is it uh, part of the overly romanticized lore of Aikido that, like, quote unquote, all the movements are based on the movements of the sword? Like the sort of round reaction to it my is, opponents? It, it, very much, I can probably about 90% of Aikido technique I can do with a sword in my hand. Okay. So, so it quite practically is the case. Yes. It also just sounds awesome. Yeah. 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 It's, but it's very practical. And plus, um, when you're handling, like, even when we start with the wooden sword, you know, Bokan, um, it helps a person focus and it also helps them with their balance better because, um, you're adding an extension to yourself. And so now you have to be more wary of your, your center and, you know, how you're holding yourself, mm -hmm. you know, your posture, your alignment becomes so important. Uh, that's probably, if you talk to my students, they, I talk posture and alignment, whether it's standing or in jujitsu on the ground, alignment is everything. Now, can you dance? Yeah. I'm going to ask your wife. Yeah. No. <laughs> to verify yeah, this. Yeah, I can dance. Yeah. If you're a lot of footwork training, you either can dance or you're Zach Jeffrey and out there. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen Zach Chance, but it's just warm-ups. <laughs> and it's just amazing. Shrimping on the dance floor. Oh, yep. Technical stand-ups. Oh, sprawling. Not only can Mike dance, but he's um, able to identify shivable moments while he dances. Shiv like stabby stab. Yeah. yeah. I was like, chivalry? No. We're talking about stabby stab. Uh, knife fighting? A lot, we do a lot of that in Aikido. Um, our style... Uh, we drew my uh, my instructor Sosa Sensei was really good friends with Dan Osanto. So yeah. our style of knife work is not like you're just stab stab. It's have you mentioned on the podcast who Dan Osanto is? Just right now. Would you like to explain? Because you've had Gus on here, who's and his wife is a they've descendant, all, yeah. and yep. yeah, Greg. So, yeah. So Dan Osanto was Bruce Lee's top student. Mm -hmm. Very simple enough, and he he has taken and he has a black belt in Machado Jiu Jitsu too. Mm -hmm. So, but his, his knife work and his, uh, his Kali and his Eskrima is pretty off the charts. If combat sports was a web, he's one of the center connecting points of it, of everything. You can, he's, he's your Kevin Bacon. Yeah. And that is also one of the reasons why this area has such a, feels like got started so early. Well, with Rick Fay, yeah, yeah, and and uh, now you have people, yeah, and he's and the fact that Sando's been around here and had connections with Greg, who has connections to the top of the best, some of the best UFC fighters who mm -hmm. ever lived, and all the way down to local guys who own gyms that wanted to start a long time ago and stuff. It's it's and Santo's a really amazing connection when you finally find out who he is and all the people that he's put on their on their path. And he's quite possibly one of the nicest human beings you'll ever meet. Also that. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a... What but, do you got to do to be born in the next life like that? <laughs> do better today? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad way to put it, though. Yeah, if Dan Osanto was standing there with a knife and I had my Glock, I'd probably throw my Glock at him and run. <laughs> <laughs> All hope is lost at that point, huh? Stay in your lane and know your role. <laughs> uh, number one tip for anybody who finds themselves being confronted with someone with a knife? Run. There it is. There it is. 
I love that every badass, everybody who knows how to just tear a person apart from, uh, you hear Jocko say it all the time too, and they go, run, get out of there. You Show your ass and elbows rotating away at a high rate of speed. You don't know what's going to happen in a fist fight. That lucky punch comes in and you're knocked out. Mm-hmm. The I, amount, can't, I can't see what's in your pockets either. The amount that that of that that ex, uh, the amount of danger that you're presented with a weapon now is so far beyond that already unknown danger of a fist fight, right? It's a it's ninety nine percent chance you're gonna lose. Well, you you can get on you know your average Joe can just get on YouTube now and see and learn what a sewing machine technique is with a knife. Mm-hmm. You know that's you know you that's pretty hard to deal with yeah even if somebody's not trained and they're just somebody who's having a mental health issue a breakdown and they're and they and they're going combative with a knife and you even if you think you know what you're doing your first option should be disengage it's every time every um sf person i've ever talked to said just you gotta prep that you're gonna get cut Mm -hmm. you just gotta try to mitigate where you're gonna get cut and these are the mentally toughest people there they can tolerate Mm -hmm. pain to the highest and you're a regular person and you get cut, you don't know how you're going to react, and you can't practice cutting yourself. <laughs> Please don't practice <laughs> yeah. cutting yourself. Please don't do that. So I want to get cut on the back of my forearm as I run the fuck away. Yeah, or... Right yeah. On the how do you feel about these movies where they show a guy taking the knife in the hand so he can control the knife? I would probably scream, cry, and fall to the ground. I think that's probably... Not just wince like all the tough guys in the movie? Yeah. That happened to a cop on the 5 in Minneapolis, the bus route. Mm-hmm. He was. They had cops just patrolling the bus. A guy grabbed him from behind and went to put the knife in his throat, and he made it had to go through his hand instead. Well, that that I can see being... It's your last... But he was just... He said it was just, just reflex. Reaction. He, just pure, pure survival moment. And yeah, I said, but it did work to disengage the knife from the guy. Um, the guy kind of freaked out at that point and... And, tr- and they kind of got in a struggle or whatever, but he had to let the knife go to win the struggle. It's a weird story, but that's fucking gross, dude. <laughs> and they and the cop. I can feel this story, and it's gross. And the and the <laughs> by the cops' account, the uh, everybody on the bus just kind of sat there like nothing was happening. I hate that. Like they're all looking forward. Nobody was paying attention. Cause welcome, they, welcome to the Midwest, huh? Well, it was the uh, the five so notoriously bad. That people don't want to get involved because then they get mm. drug into it. If the cop loses, then oh that guy turns. God. Yeah, yeah. Then that was 10, 12 years ago. So who knows? It might have gotten better. They would all been recording now. It hasn't gotten oh, better. Yeah. They would just be recording it. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's uh, and that's another guy who's used to getting confrontations with people and probably has been through a few things and now he's taking a knife and it's ending his day and possibly his career. You don't mm. want to be a regular dude in a knife fight. You don't want to be an exceptional dude in a knife fight either. Do you have those electric knives? Yeah, I have shock knives. That's a good way to learn how what vulnerable you f- are in a knife fight. What the fuck is a shock knife? So it's an um, eight-inch blade. Um, it's got graphite on the edge, and it runs on a nine-volt battery, and you push the button, and it arcs. And when it hits you, it, it feels like you're getting cut for a second. That's actually really cool. So and you think you can take off your uh, dinner jacket and go disarm the guy with a knife because you watched a few kar- karate movies? And all of a sudden, you're getting electrocuted every time. You start learning all that. That's that's not going to be a good. Thing. When I when I do law enforcement training, they it's the guys that know me. And as soon as I pull out that black case, you can just hear them all go, oh, "Fuck!" <laughs> <laughs> pull out because I'll put what I'll do is I'll have the bag there and I'll be talking and I'll pull out a like a 
a brick of nine volt batteries and then pull out the black case but then they just oh no here we go the pavlovian disappointment and okay, yeah. why did i come here today do you uh compete much over the years i i did mm-hmm. a lot when i was younger you know it was it was like i said it was weird competing up here when like it was a blue belt because it was like five of us sure we'd sure. always be competing yeah. against each other but yeah i competed in uh you know i went out to california and competed and when chicago had stuff i competed I've done nagas you know i did naga you know up to, i think the last naga i did was maybe it was right before I got my black belt because I I fought at Naga Las Vegas, and that was fun. And how'd you do? Uh, won a belt. Yes, that's one of his like dreams is to have a Naga belt. It's the first thing I saw in a jujitsu gym. Yeah, it was you walked in the door and there was a Naga belt, and they looks they look so legit. Mm-hmm. I was like, it's a, it's growing up on WWF. Is and the now oh, that I realize yeah. it's so obtainable, I'm like, whoa, of course it's, I. Have to go <laughs> well, it was funny because like when I was there, it was like. Only the, the adult divisions and only like purple belt and above had belts. That's what it still is, I think. It, they, well, it's master's division gets belts too now and kids. And kids. But they have to be the expert divisions of whatever yeah. bracket they're in. So who doesn't get a belt at Anaga? Blue belts and under. And since most and, tournaments and like of that. Open or adult division. Since most tournaments, honestly, are mostly blue belts and under. Mm, okay. I mean, there's purple belts, yeah. But mm. it, your, most of your expert division is going to be. When I did uh, Naga Minneapolis, the Masters Division, they only had one Masters Division for 30 up, and it was me and Jahan and one other guy. Oh. <laughs> you know, So it's like, all right, everybody's about the same experience level yeah. here. But it's uh, nice, you know, it's nice. You know, like I, I absolutely despise IBJJF, and for a few reasons. And number one, uh, it was originally funded by cartel money. Um yeah, and long story on that one too. Um, number two, um, I'm not a fan of the rule set because it, you know, it propagates stalling. It propagates, you know, position over submission. I like my subs. Uh, number three, I like it, stalling. So you like st- get I'm on, down with IBJJ. get on top and lay and pray. <laughs> wait for that bell, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the third thing that gets me is because um i'm at the point in my life where i'm not going to cut weight anymore in fact my wife told me she would divorce me if i cut weight anymore so I've heard you similar. know i walk around my walk around is you know between 240 you know around 240 and do you even lift bro yeah i lift bro <laughs> <laughs> but so uh uh since i can't cut it I, I would have to cut to 218 pounds to make super heavy so i'm stuck in ultra and the two times I did Masters World, like the first guy I got, the first year I, I did it, um, I got a picture I'll show you. His name is Jeff Owen. He's a Travis Luter black belt out of Texas. Now we're buddies. But um, he, he was 6'4", pushing 300 pounds. Travis Luter, and works as a lineman, like mm-hmm. like like electrical lineman. He's got hands are like lunch boxes. <laughs> so I get out there, I'm like, and I had one of my students with me, and I'm like getting warmed up. I'm in the bullpen, and my student goes, "His head is like three times the size of yours." I'm like, "You're not fucking helping." <laughs> yeah, right. So I, no, I got this is a great story, and, and yeah. I, I will say this just because I find it amusing, 
And I think it's the best thing ever because, you know, everyone can talk about their wins, but when you can laugh about your losses, Mm -hmm. I think it's even better, especially for your students. Um, So Jeff and I get out there and we're facing each other. And here's, I'm going to give you your description. You've seen the movie, The Avengers, right? Mm -hmm. You remember when Loki was cocking off to the Hulk? Yeah. And the Hulk just goes, wham, 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 (laughs) puny God. Pretty much what Jeff did to me. So he, he did. He literally, we locked up and we're sitting there and I'm kind of going, what am I going to do with this monster? Am I going to shoot? Am I going to, I guess he jumps butterfly guard. His legs never touched me. He jumps butterfly guard and he more or less pulls me over the top by my collar, slams me to my back, rolls up into mount. We fight for a little bit and he arm bars me and I'm like going, that was just surreal. I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I am glad you experienced this, though. I'm glad you guys have to complete an alternate. Uh, I'm happy to hear this because it's nice to know that somebody out there knows how us smallish people feel in the gym on a day to day basis, especially out here in the Midwest. Everywhere, I'm like, I'm 180 pounds. I'm not that small of a guy, but I am just the runt every day in the gym. So I'm glad to hear about big guys getting tossed around and getting there. Oh, yeah. He, he just owned me. It was sad. <laughs> That's why they need to change the name from the, what is it, ultra heavy to just unlimited. Yeah. So people well, fully understand that there might be a 370 pound, six foot I eight wish dude. they would put uh, another two weight classes yes. in there. And I've, I've yep. lobbied for that. I actually um, spent some time uh, talking to the Atama guys because they're all about that too. But can't get the IBJJF to do it. Oh, I want to show you this meme from the day. That's on the jujitsu. That's what I posted this morning on jujitsu after dark. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's about spot on. I saw it. Yeah. You know, teach them. some people do prefer the IBJJF. They like the, uh, it does make them feel like more of a, I guess, legitimate. That's the guy. Oh my God. You look like a kid next to him. Right. But yeah, the IBJF allows people to go feel like, uh, you know, they get ranked and they have a national following or international following, whatever it's. Look at his hands compared to mine. Yeah. And this is like Chris and I, years and years ago, both competed in strongman. Yeah. Which like you look at a dude like me and you're like, all right, that makes sense. And you look at a dude to him and you go, what a minute, what? They had a lightweight strongman. They did. Yeah. But I mean, at six foot one and 305 pounds at a higher level amateur contest, I was a runt. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, you've seen it on TV. You've seen who is winning it. You know, they're six foot eight and 375 pounds, yeah. you know. But that, and that's why, you know, more weight classes at the top make sense as humanity gets larger. It would be, you know? and it would be really nice because, like I said, I'm going to be 50 in what, five months. Mm-hmm. And I love my wife and I have been married for 20 years. And I really don't want her to divorce me over me cutting weight for a stupid medal. Mm hmm. Mood and carbs have a close relationship. It seems. I think, and I think I can see how internationally people don't understand the need for more weight classes. But I mean, right here in the Midwest, we got more probably north of two hundred people than we do south. Oh yeah, I would agree. Guys yeah. and gals, come take a look <laughs> if you don't believe me. <laughs> most, of, most of them a little on the soft side, but nonetheless, weight but is still, some of these guys, you look at their hands and everything, you're like, yeah. man, six months of any kind of training, your body will adapt and you'll be uh, a giant of whatever you're doing. You know, you look at. Back when we were doing Strongman, I remember looking at just person after person in the store going, what a waste. What a waste. <laughs> That's a 650-pound yeah. deadlift yeah, after yeah. a couple months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, you compete in the other stuff? You, I mean, you have, you have pretty wide and varied uh, martial arts history. Sword uh, fighting. Well, you know, we did. I actually got, like, when I was young, young, I was studying Kempo. 
and our Okinawan, our style of Kampo Ryute is, it's no joke. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. we're not kicking people's heads. We're, we're, we're throwing more or less tie kicks at people's legs and, you know, hitting yeah. them straight on and going after them. Well, I did this tournament up in Fargo and, uh, I guess, you know, I signed up for it and fine, good to go. And, uh, it was a, uh, I guess it was a point fighting tournament. And I guess I didn't really understand that when I just hauled off and jacked the dude and took him right off his feet and broke his nose and yeah. I got disqualified. I'm like, oh, why? I feel like I should be bonus points. That's like when you not totally alike, but you know, when you go to a soft adult softball game, they say if you hit a home run, that's an out. Yeah. Yeah. That's yep. kind of the same feeling. Like, what are you talking about? Cause are I did you better. Fucking serious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, jacking them out of the park is uh, well. So you're supposed to bunt bats. Now it's like you know, you could, your Natalie could get up there and probably swing them all out of the park. Yeah, so they're making. Yeah, it's stupid. And also, if you kicked in the face in a Olympic karate match and <laughs> get knocked out, crazy. you're the winner. <laughs> that was crazy. You know what that it, it made I me could think be an of? Olympic champion. Made me think of the Korean Olympics where Roy Jones Jr. Oh. beat the shit out of the Korean, and then because the judges felt bad for the home country, he lost. Yeah, and he literally beat the guy to a pulp. And Roy looked like he—I don't think he broke a sweat. No, yeah, I have never heard of this. Uh, yeah, the um, Korean Olympics is something interesting to go back and revisit. <laughs> yeah, there's some interesting things that happened there. Uh, Korea did well, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> as it turns out. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so mental health. Yeah, um, I, I've become a huge a good transition ad- from by me, by the way. <laughs> Great job. Um, I've become a huge advocate for this because going through it myself, I didn't realize that I was off. Yeah. And I didn't know I was off. And it was affecting my marriage, my business, my relationship with my kids, relationships with my family. And uh, my wife actually sat me down and said, you got to do something about this. I was drinking too much. I was just, you know, and it was just to kind of kill whatever pain was there. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't realize it. So went in a therapist first. Then uh, my buddy who is the head of sports performance at the University of Minnesota goes, you need to go see this lady. And so it's been a few years now. I went and saw, she's a longevity specialist over in Edina. And she's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And uh, she did all the blood work on me and everything else. I had so much crap out of whack, it wasn't even funny. Mm. Um, I, she, she said to me, because, you know, I, I work out all the time. I love it. And she said to me, she goes, you must just be absolutely sore all the time. I'm like, I am. Mm-hmm. You know, between jujitsu, lifting, Aikido. Uh, I said, I am. I'm just constantly systemically sore. She goes, well, look, let's look at your cortisol levels here. Now let's look at your free testosterone. Now let's look at your thyroxin and everything else. And she's like, she's like, you're depressed, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah. Got my hormones in line. Couldn't believe the difference. I'm such a happy camper now. Mm-hmm. I think it scares my kids half the time that I'm so happy. Well, uh- there's one, one specific point worth addressing there is I'm assuming because you're an animal in the gym and you're training all these different things, you just figured this is the life. Boy, you feel beat up. You feel sore all the time. Yeah. It wasn't the negative indicator it might have otherwise been. Because that's like, yeah, working out. I'm training. You're sore. Welcome to it. So you never would have thought maybe something's wrong because I've normalized this outcome in my head. Exactly. It's like, you know, little things. It's like I was getting to the point where 
like grips like on geese were really hurting me and I, i'm kind of known for my grips i get a hold of something and i and i do it in a relaxed fashion so it's really people can't get grips off it i was like oh god i can't even grip i think everything hurts everything was inflamed you know and you know, so it was mm -hmm. like a couple diet dietary changes um changed up uh it, it, she get my testosterone was absolutely through the basement like as in like she said i can't believe you're maintaining the muscle mass you are mm -hmm. she goes you just got to be killing yourself and i'm like you know you're right i'm not getting anywhere mm -hmm. so she got me all balanced out and everything and so i couldn't be happier how long ago was this uh, three years uh, so yeah i still i've heard that a lot from uh guys who find gals too actually they're Gals more so the differences they talk about with being on and off birth control from the ladies I know. Mm -hmm. um, but guys who have gone through different hormone therapies tend to talk about how like it's just like the sun came out. And it, it's exactly it. Um, the therapy part, though, you talked about that. You just kind of transitioned real quickly into... I was I was impressed. That I, can I ask, what was the... It's a tough bridge to cross for a lot of guys to just go. I need. I'm gonna. Get, I'm gonna get a hold of a therapist. It's a weird thing. It's a stranger. Yeah. There's a stigma on it, and that's probably the biggest thing. You, it, a lot of men, you know, because we're most of us want to be alphas, and it's that's looked at, you know, historically as a sign of weakness. Yeah, and it's not. It's a sign of strength. Mm -hmm. Well, and so the misconception, you know, like the. They picture what they saw in The Sopranos or some other show where they're laying on a couch or supposed to open up and cry and there's going to be all these, you know. And one thing I've told friends who I was kind of talking about, if you're going through a tough time, find a therapist. But I said, like a jujitsu gym, don't just stop at one. When you're first going through, find what works for you. You're going to meet a lot of different therapists like you meet a lot of different coaches. And some of them aren't going to click. Some of them just, you won't vibe with them. And some, you'll be like, this feels very comfortable. But the idea that I think a lot of people have in their head before they even, they won't contact a therapist. They won't even get started on that path because they feel they're all going to be just a little too lovey-dovey. Let's hug it out and cry. No, you I, know? I, my, my therapist, uh, he called me right out on my shit. Yeah. You know, and that's what I needed to hear. Yeah. You know, because it wasn't, you know, it was because I was kind of in that woe is me mode. Yeah. And he's just like, it was more like cliff notes. Fuck you. Okay. We're going to address this stuff, but you got to understand there's a lot of underlying things here. You had a lot of trauma as a kid. You were abused as a kid, Yeah, you know, things I never dealt with mm -hmm. and getting, moving forward and being able to get through that was huge. And I don't think I'm ever going to be completely through it, Yeah, but it's like the tunnel, I'm out of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. It's no longer a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm out of that. Yeah. And now I can enjoy what's around me. I'm enjoying my school. It's like, there was a time where I just didn't even want to be on the mat, mm -hmm. which, you know, I was like, am I, am I just burned out? Do I need to do something different? And then the next week I'd just be like, I'm so happy to be on the mat. It was just, there was no balance. It was, I was either here mm -hmm. or here. And it was like, then, you know, you talk about, um, Think of your action movie cops. Mm -hmm. Every cop in an action movie that's, you know, got to be somewhat disturbed, have some issues, um, drinks too much, you know, does the Stallone Cobra thing, goes to the freezer, grabs a piece of pizza, cuts it with the scissors. Someone explain that to me. <laughs> Scissor pizza. I don't understand. You got to look it up. It'll make you laugh. Um, 
the that is a thing too like in the culture i'm professionally involved in you know the the idea of the stoic quiet drunk who's been through so much that he just wants to sit here's one thing you want to be left alone and you want to drink and have your just darkness right but you do it at a bar which is a social atmosphere. Why Why is the Punisher drinking at a bar when he doesn't want to talk to anybody about <laughs> what's going on in his life? Yeah. So, but, you know, we are raised with that image of this is a man. This is the old cowboy, mm-hmm. the, the outlaw Josie Wales, and you, you chew tobacco and you do everything. You smoke cigarettes and you drink and you do everything that will tear your body apart. And you see a lot of guys like that. It's, it is really sad. They don't understand that you can balance it out, that you can be, you know... Uh, a better person well, and, and, I think and the t- masculine move is to open up and i think i think realistically a lot of that to- quote unquote toxic masculinity um is from a bit of self-loathing yeah and once you can learn to you know i know it sounds fluffy but you learn to love yourself mm-hmm. then things it's a lot easier to love what's around you when you actually have care for yourself first yeah yep I think a lot of people, when you were at a different point too, you already had accomplished a lot and you did have personal belief. Um, you know, you, you had some confidence in your abilities and stuff like that. And some of these people we're talking about, you know, they they kind of skip all that and they go right to being the dark passenger at the bar, you know, and so they don't even have the confidence that, they're, that they can do things if they wanted to. And that might be also a driving indicator that they've tried and failed really quickly. And not try it again. Mm-hmm. So now they just sit there and this is a lot easier to pretend I'm a man doing this way than actually doing man shit, you know? You didn't have all that holding you down, I, f- I assume? Um, I, my mind would place the uh, slabs of cement on me. Yeah. So, you know, that's what I had to get through is that I'm, it wasn't the, it wasn't because it's easy to blame everything around you or what happened to you. You know, if you don't deal with it, then that can be the slab that's holding you down. Mm. But, you know, taking a moment and, you know, actually taking a clear look at yourself in the mirror is, and it's usually, that's probably the hardest thing. When you actually get a clear look at yourself and realize there needs to be change, and we all know change does not come easy in any fashion. Mm -hmm. It's... So, yeah, when you, so as somebody who's accomplished a bit, when you know there's need to be change, you know how to enact that. You, I mean, is is it? No, I had no idea. If, if I if my wife didn't chew my ass, right? When uh, so when you got to therapy and they and they said you know you said you had a very upfront therapist who says you need to change, you need to do this. Does it feel like you went into competitor mode? Where like I'm focusing on this, I'm I'm making no, this a daily drive. The the therapist was very good about me coming to my own conclusions, and I think that's what you go into a person that's trained to do this. Yeah. They're not going to say you need to do this now. Yeah. You need to do this now. They want you to find your own conclusions. Yeah. That's what they're trained to do. They're trained to help you, you know, actualize a better self. And you can't. Someone can't tell you to do that. You know, our natural reaction is. Uh, just people in general if if you tell natalie go clean your room mm-hmm. what kind of is there it is right yep. you can immediately so i've someone, actually seen her on the way to go to wash dishes and i've said can you go take care of those dishes and she just stopped dead in her tracks I'm like nah, i don't want to do this anymore yep yep so we our natural reaction is to butt up against things like that yeah and i see so once you come to your conclusion that you need to change once you come to the conclusion that something has to be done and, and you've had help to help you come to that conclusion, now you're in the driver's seat. 
Oh no. No. No, you're still you're still kind of somewhere in the middle of the bus there. Yeah. But um, because at that point it's time to enact a plan, and that's what my therapist had me do was write down a plan. What are your goals for yourself? Not not business, but for yourself. So the other thing that I do, and I can't say everyone does this, is that I will I I would stifle my own pain issues, whatever because I wanted to take care of everyone around me. Ah. And so I had to learn to take a moment for myself. And my business manager still will get on me. She's fantastic about that. She'll go, she'll go, um, you need to uh, dial it down, go worry about yourself for a day, yeah. that sort of thing. Just go. Because, you know, I love churning and burning, but mm-hmm. there's the burning part that mm-hmm. gets to you. So, and I don't want to fall back into any old patterns. Yeah. And I, I've, I've heard over and over again too. I've heard that from other people about, they said they've burned themselves out and not even noticing how they feel because they've spent so much time and it's so easy to get lost in that because you feel so noble about doing that. I'm, I'm a provider. I'm, yep. I'm the sheepdog out here taking care of everybody and never once going to take care of yourself. And once they start doing that, they see a whole, they see that everybody else's life, they're still able to help. And they see that even if they dial it back a little bit, people's lives, the people they care about lives are still doing well. A really good analogy that I heard kind of talking about that is, is that you can, if you spend your life pushing people out of the way of cars, eventually you're going to get hit. Yeah, that's a good one. It's kind of a universal mom problem too, actually. Just, yep. just from my years of personal training is 80 to 90% of your personal training clients, no matter where you work, are going to be women. A gigantic percentage of them are moms, mm-hmm. and they all neglect themselves for the benefit of the people around them. I've had a talk with my wife before about if your whole identity is that you are a mom, is being a mom and taking care of your kids, or being a dad. or you know, We have mm-hmm. friends that they, they cancel all plans because they're a dad, right? And then they kind of go down this path. And one of the things they've... <clears throat> I've told my wife is I'm like, you're going to be a really boring person who people are going to want to hang out with. Cause that's, or there are other people who are just like you that their center point, their whole identity is this one thing. Right. And it's not just about being a mom. It's about if you're a company guy, you know, if you work at I'm, my identity as being the head of this 3M department or all I am is a black belt in jujitsu. Yeah. All I am is a cop. This, all is, I am this is, is the conversation I can have and that's it. And that's what I prioritize. Mm-hmm. And it's less, I think, fine to acknowledge people aren't going to find you overly interesting, but it's also just, are you actually fulfilled there? And that's what it is. It's like, not is so much the diversity that, of interests that you're happy with. But stuff? it starts a chain. Then you don't have as many, yeah. fr- then you don't have as big a social network and then you feel alone and then you feel like you don't have, maybe I didn't live all the life I should have lived and stuff like that. And then you get to realize that you did it to yourself. And that's probably the biggest thing. That's for which me, gives you the agency to change. For change. Yeah. Well, like the Zen philosopher Bach show said, he talks about change and that a fisherman is in the still part of the river and gets dragged down into the rapids, gets thrown from the boat, grabs onto this rock, holds onto this rock, even though he's being thrashed to death against this rock, he won't let go. And the river's name is change. Man. It's when you think about it, you know, I think about that one a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, he also said that a flute with no holes is not a flute <laughs> and a donut with no that holes is, is a Danish. Danish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think, like you, man. Think of, <laughs> think of how fucking awesome jujitsu is or name the martial art. 
right? Like what you take from it as a person physically, mentally, emotionally, you know, life skills, being able to choke a motherfucker out. That seems kind of cool. <laughs> being able to sensibly defend yourself, also very cool. And think of how absolutely impossible it is to get most people to approach the process of learning it, right? Because it it sucks in the beginning. I can say mm-hmm. that because I'm there, <laughs> okay? It's not, there's a, there's a lot of not enjoyable parts about it. So now make that sitting on a couch confronting demons from your childhood. Mm. Well, that fucking sucks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, even harder to convince, especially us puffed up dudes to approach it. It makes perfect sense. Like when you think of how awesome so many things are and it's just really hard to get people to get into it because it's challenging and uncomfortable in the beginning and in the middle well, and, 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 and the that, end. And that kind of change requires other things too is your, uh, your circle will change. You know, because, you know, my, uh, my sensei, Sosa sensei would always say warriors of a feather flock together. So if you are, if you're in that place, you're going to find people in that place because you can commiserate in that place. And that's not healthy either. What do you think about getting a therapist for people who don't feel maybe asymptomatic? Maybe they feel like, is is therapy something that everybody should at least tap into and try out here and there. I, I I can only speak for myself with that and try to be an agent for people who feel maybe felt the way I felt or had, had some of the things happen that I had happen. Then I would say absolutely. But you know, being able to talk to someone, no matter what, you know, we've all had that friend that we could sit and talk to. Yeah. And I just, I've seen some people who have nothing, nothing seems to affect them. No matter what, they, and I know people have been through a lot professionally and personally, and they can just get through this stuff over and over again. Wow, that went through a lot. Wow, that's a terrible situation. Wow, that that really sucks. And they kind of just push through, push you. But then one day, it just kind of seems like everything fell apart. And it was later, later in life, you know. And so it's almost Sisyphean. You can only push that rock that's getting bigger. For but so they don't. Long. They didn't know they were pushing the rock the whole time. They never felt it. And that was actually one of my conversations I had this morning with a friend was the lack of feeling it, but knowing that it's there. And so that's kind of what I'm talking about, like being asymptomatic. You know things are there that you probably affected you, but you don't have depression and darkness on a, on a regular basis. You know, you have sad days and happy days, whatever. But I'm so wondering... You're, you're so well well adapted to adversity and stress that you don't realize there's another skill set you don't have and aren't putting into practice. Well, and depression doesn't just happen. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's a cycle of things that are happening outside of you. That's a cycle of things that are going on inside you and it's a slow progression. And that's why you might not ever notice it. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, what it took was someone outside of me, saying something and that's why i'm wondering if people should be going to get diagnostic checkups before somebody in their personal life mental health okay here it is let's 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 once again throw our pharmaceutical culture out the window for a second and say maybe let's do an ounce of prevention and you know yeah your yearly checkup your your biannual checkup should come with a therapy session to say hey how's life I don't know how exactly it goes, right? I haven't been to a therapist in a long, long time, which I should get a number from you if you don't mind <laughs> after the show, just because of what I'm talking about here. There's stuff, you know, I've been just through different ventures in life or whatever. There's been a lot of stuff that 
I worry about is going to affect me harshly later on. Sometimes I, I can kind of see like, oh, is that because of that, you know? So what, what you're wondering about is, is are there like base level skills that could be explored, questioned if they're even there by some some level of annual check-ins like i go to the doctor they say hey you know a little exercise little diet improvements Mm -hmm. can that sort of low level conversation happen and alter prevention at the mental health level just to sort of ignite the thought in more people well my wife works for health partners and they're very uh, and she's an it she's brilliant just terrible taste obviously um thank god for women our wives have a lot in common (laughs) (laughs) so uh but their health partners have been very, very proactive on that mental health side of things. I've been pretty impressed with that. Yeah. It's like, you know, we can, through her insurance, I can call, if I needed to, I could call a wellness counselor at any mm-hmm. time. You can just get hold of someone if you need someone to talk to, which, yeah. and I think most insurance companies do that now. You know, I guess if the biggest ballers in the world right now, the ma- most major players that we all know and they don't know us kind of people, they're all going to therapy and they're all going performance therapy if nothing else every player in the nfl is probably mm-hmm. in, uh, seeing a therapist so i guess yeah I mean, i'm surprised we don't give it to more professional uh athletes industrial athletes as they're called um soldiers should be getting regular oh man absolutely you know? and i know it's out there it's available but it should be pushed upon people with your checkup you know if you're going to go take care of your health you should be this should be included in the package i think well, if you get your body in shape to go off to war, you damn well better get your head in shape. And on the way home. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, well, thanks for opening up about that. That's I think it's important. It is. Yeah. It is. It's just there still needs to be more. Again, with our, within our insulated circle, we know enough guys who are strong enough to admit that they also the, you need to tune up the mental side of things. But like you said, that's the other 99% of people who don't hang out with this kind of people who are this clear-minded, this kind of the kind of people like challenging themselves to be better. They don't hang out with people like that. They may never hear that it's actually strong to go be counseled, to be coached. You know, maybe we should call it coaching instead of therapy. You know, that would probably work a lot better. Yeah, Depends on amazing. the relationship you had with your coach. That's true. <laughs> your coach <laughs> might be why you're in therapy. Yeah. <laughs> but lexicon really, really makes a difference. That's for sure. It, it, it does. <clears throat> Mike, last question I usually ask on here of black belts in any given uh, endeavor, any given art, is advice they would give to practitioners of said activity. And I'll frame it, you know, for each belt level and whatnot when it's just jujitsu, but we've got some other options here. So I think I'd just leave it broad. I would I would probably quote one of my really, really good friends, um, Chris Howder, on that. And he would say... It's not who's best, it's who's last. So, you know. Who's left. Who's left, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He'll probably yell at me for that. Uh-huh. I'll get a text from him. Um, <laughs> but realistically, you're going to feel like quitting. There's going to be times where you're going to get injured. Um, you talk about coaching. Uh, right after I got my black belt I w- in jiu-jitsu, I was passing one of my purple belts guards, and I wound up popping two ribs. Like one, in, it was like in front, and then one, both popped in front, and one popped in back. Now that put me out like realistically for about fourteen weeks, and it, you know where you when you can't breathe, you know you're dead in the water. And you know I told Chris McCune, I'm just like, ah, oh, this is killing me. I just I don't, you know, I'm I was so frustrated. And he sat and 
said, you know, we're all going to go through this. And he had a really great conversation with me. He mentored me a ton and helped me get through it. And you're going to have those times. You're going to get injured. You're going to feel like quitting. And, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, when the, you know, the, the day that you, know, you feel like quitting, that's the day to get on the mat. Sometimes that's the day to take off and just give yourself a break. Because once again, if you're pounding through something so hard that it's not enjoyable, that you're paying for, why? I always say, I, I always want my, my classes are fun. You know, Chris knows me. I'm a, I'm a fucking smart ass. When I teach classes, I'm a smart ass, you know, unless, you know, it needs to be serious. And I think if you can do martial arts in a joyful fashion and you have a good atmosphere, if people are laughing while they're doing jujitsu or Aikido or whatever, that's a good atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> the more enjoyable it is, the easier it is to, to tie on your belt and get on the mat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I do like that. The enjoyable atmosphere of gyms, that culture of jujitsu shifted that way. Largely. There's still a few other places. And for a good reason, um, some people do like the, the militant style, basic mm-hmm. training, uh, put me in my place type of thing. But yeah, not my style. Nah, don't it's hard to I go to that. Don't tell me how to tie my belt and don't tell me what color gi I can wear. It's hard. To, it's hard to write a guy a check every month to have him yell at you for me. You know, yeah. I don't want you. I'm a grown man. I don't need you. I've already been through basic training. I don't, I, I don't need like, that shit. It's like a. Um, my my instructor Sosa Sensei in Texas had this one, um, and Sosa Sensei could be very caring, but he was very serious too. And he had this one student, and I'll never forget this. The student looked at him and said, "I already have a dad," and he walked off the mat and never came back. Yep. And you know, and, and it was funny because that really struck Sosa Sensei. So he changed that day. It was like he's like, oh, I gotta, because he was being too much like his instructor. Right. You know, mm-hmm. who is, you know, traditional Japanese man that would never hug someone, you know, would stay three feet away mm-hmm. unless you, he's got his hands on you or you're doing technique, that sort of thing. That's fine. But so I, I so since they changed and he evolved and then all of a sudden there's more people in the dojo and it became a healthier environment all the way through. It's the beauty of a good feedback loop. Yeah. Pay attention. And good for good on him too to see himself as the source of the problem and not put it on the student who walked out. That guy's a loser. He'll never make it. That's why his life's going to suck forever. Right. Cause honestly, like I was saying, like my life's going pretty well. I've got my bills paid. I'm taking care of my, my kids fed, you know, I don't need you yelling at me. I got my shit together. <laughs> all right. If I'm 15 minutes late, it's cause I had something going on or I was just going through life at my own pace. You know, I, if I'm trying to be a 19 year old world champion and you know the path then yeah, I should listen to everything you have to say. But mm-hmm. if I'm just paying you just to get in shape and learn a fun martial art and you know, all the other add ons that come with jujitsu, right. Back off a little bit, make it a fun place. Um, yeah, that's what, well, that's, you know, being, a, being a, the, the professor or sensei, whatever, yeah. um, realizing that this person wants to be a competitor. This person is just here for fun. This person wants to be able to defend themselves. This person loves the community. You, you know, there's mm-hmm. and being able, then you can teach them appropriately. You can't cookie cutter everyone. No. And if you do, you're going to alienate people. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to have the people that are 
like-minded or fall into line or mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But are they going to stick with it in the long haul? That's the question. If Because mm-hmm. eventually it's like they're going to have that existential moment, like, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. And once they... And once they make that decision, they're either going to be on the mat or off the mat. I'd rather keep them away from having to make that decision. I'd let let them have kind of an open option, multiple choice, however you want. No, no concrete answer uh, that if they have to make this decision, it's of their own accord and not because of anything around them. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you've seen a common thread there too with Kev, after Kevin Black's talk philosophy on training and how he's got things going on in victory. That's Natalie just, it's a punishment to make her miss practice because of how much fun they're having. That's awesome. And, Kevin's a great coach. And that's why I'm still pumped up from that. That's that why I want her to go there. I want people, I want people I care about to be involved in places like this because especially kids, because they're going to grow up seeing that as the place they go have fun, not the place where they go have to just ask more of themselves every day you know it's they're doing that but they don't know they're doing that quite as much because they're having fun they see it as a place like i miss my friends let me go to the gym and adults who get jujitsu i think that's what they kind of get out of it too i miss the there's something else besides just going and choking somebody that you get out of it you know for the kids especially you're helping them build their personal constitution it's not terribly appropriate to like be the person testing their personal constitution. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're helping them develop like some quizzes along the way is fine, but the full examination of like your grit and determination and discipline. I'm 11. Yeah. yeah right. Lay off. Me. Yeah. Well, I'm having fun. I, I guarantee you, know. you Kevin has evolved as a coach with that too, because you know, mm-hmm. he came out of the old school, hardcore stuff. Yeah. And you know, how many kids do you see? It doesn't matter whether it's, football baseball basketball wrestling that are coming up through these things and if they are push 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 and there's your parents living vicariously through their kids a lot mm-hmm. of times and they burn out and then they're not going to do it anymore and sometimes it's not even, i like the vicariously through the kids is yes that's a huge problem but there's also another set of parents too that like the mom or dad who puts all their identity into being a parent they think they're doing what's best for their kid. Their kid gets all these gold medals, gets a national champion. Think of the confidence they're going to have. Think of they're going to be the coolest kid in school. Every you know, Colleges are going to be beating on their door. It's going to open all the doors of opportunity by, through winning. And one thing Kevin broke down is it doesn't do that. It breaks down to the kid. You're only as good as your last competition. You're only mm-hmm. – unless you're winning, if, if you're winning, you're great. And if you're not winning – now you're not you're nobody, and that's really what you ended up teaching them, which is not healthy at all. No, no, and you want to think you're the cu- you you are the accumulation of your work, you are the accumulation of your goodness and what you provide to others around you and stuff. And there's a lot of pieces, and none of it, almost none of it, is how you did in some competition where nobody watched you. So why do you want that belt so bad? <laughs> to put it like right there in that on that shelf just, space. Just go so all my, I got so all my I got, I got a couple of them down at the dojo if you want one. Oh, no, I gotta it. earn it. It's like a black value. <laughs> it's, you don't have to blow the dust off them. They're in storage. Put it next to that flag over there for my rack and stuff like that. And then all my enormous friends come over here. So maybe Suzanne has some nerd friends from her workforce come over here and they're like, man, you're the baddest motherfucker since J- JVCD, you know? So it's like when my uh, like my daughters because uh, i have two daughters uh, friends will come over yeah and they go downstairs and there's a rack full of swords and <clears> stuff <throat> like that They'd, what what does your dad do <laughs> it's a chef <laughs> it's a chef 
Now, now with all the swords down there, you're just waiting for that moment for some kid to break in with his hooligan friends, and then you cut the bill right off his hat and find out he has no flinching reflex, so you train him to be the best kumite fighter to ever live. So, um, we, we do a lot of sword work at my school, and uh, we actually have a legitimized sword style that we create more or less created through uh, the Zen Nihon Barado Renmei, which is the overseas, the the Japanese sword arts. And since we don't have anyone around here, um, I sent one of my instructors in Japan, a curriculum and everything. He said, yep, have at it. And so we're under the Zen Nihon Barado Renmei, but we have kind of our own style. It's, and it's called Shinkawa Ru, New River School. And so one of my instructors who's done sword for a long time, we sit there and talked about it. He goes, so someone breaks into, he asked me, he goes, someone breaks into your house. I go, I know where this question's going to go. He says, he wanted his gun or sword. <laughs> sword. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, I'm going it to makes st- for a better story. I'm going for the shotgun just because I think the sound is going to make them jump out the nearest window. Yep. That or a chainsaw, but I don't really want to keep a chainsaw <laughs> under my bed. <laughs> if you broke, if I broke, if I was a burglar and I broke into somebody's house and I heard a chainsaw kick yeah, off, I'd be, I'd be out. Yep. I'm going to run through the wall. <laughs> now, sword fighting. I one last. I'm sorry, I got to ask this just because he's sitting right there and you guys are big Viking guys. You talking yeah. about like peeing? Hmm? Sword fighting, like peeing? No, no, no. That's a oh. whole different art in itself. Okay. The um, you guys do Viking sword fighting? No. Oh man, just I've, I've been studying anything? Japanese sword for twenty five years. I want to see you big guys just swing around huge, like twenty pound hammer swords, just bang, bang. I used to have a like starfire always made like the the big claymores that you'd get at like uh, the Renfest. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. You know, we're at Renfest, so of course you're having mead beer, but I'm buying that, and we. We used that thing to destroy everything. I eventually <laughs> broke it on like a part of a car. Uh, <laughs> I want to see those. I want to see big those. Huge, I want to see the masters of that of those giant Scottish swords and see how they sword fight. That's got to be a quick match. You can't have a lot of stamina. Well, I guess that. if anything hits you, it's most of the time when you get those big, big, long field swords. Yeah. Because like in Japanese, they have the nodach, mm-hmm. which is that it's a long, long field sword. And the idea was it was meant to cut the legs out of cavalry. Mm. Take down horses. Oh, that's Poor terrifying. Horses. Poor horses. Yeah. What did they ever do? Yeah. <laughs> We're the ones pissed at each other. We got to ride the horses. <laughs> Mike, thanks, brother. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. It's fun. <laughs>